This is Space 101.1, LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to the September 17th, 2023 edition of Cascade of History. It's our one-year anniversary show, I think. We haven't been on every single Sunday night for the last year, but we have been on for the last year. Um, took some money the summer months off, took some time off earlier in the year, back in January. But uh, this is here it is. It's our one year of doing this show all about Northwest history. I'm Felix Bunnell. I'm the producer and host. We're here for the next hour talking, as we always do, about stuff going on in Washington and Oregon and Idaho and British Columbia. Look, treating the entire Pacific Northwest as the old Oregon country, that sort of that... Uh, area that eventually was claimed by Great Britain in the U.S., but had been indigenous territory for millennia, and uh, the history of the last couple hundred years, all sort of, it's kind of thematically related, I think, if you look at Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. And so um, later on, we're going to talk to Marcus Farner. He's exhibition manager up at Coquitlam Heritage. They have an exhibit at one of the libraries there in Coquitlam about uh, Chinese exclusion in Canada. Exhibit's only up for another, I think, 12 days or so, so we'll get information from Marcus about that. Then later in the show, we'll talk to Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. They're having their big conference next weekend. It's at the Seattle Public Library. It's free, but you have to register in advance. And I'm, I, I would have Megan on to talk about the conference regardless of the program, but I get to give the keynote speech on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. So I really have to get working on that because I have to fill... You have to do 45 minutes, I think, with just my um, random random observations on Pacific Northwest history and stuff like that. But anyway, we'll talk. We'll hear more about the other details, about the other more legitimate, incredible presentations that will be going on during that Pacific Northwest Historians Guild conference next weekend at Seattle Public Library. And uh, But first, before we do that, any of those other things, on this special one-year anniversary edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, KMGP from Magnuson Park, you know, we always broadcast. We're live from the the Sergeant at Arms quarters here in the old Naval Air Station, kind of at the main gate. It's very cool to do a history show within a, a historic landmark on the shores of Lake Washington in this incredible neighborhood. And we're streaming everywhere, too, at space101fm.org. It's our website address, too. There's other schedule information there about all the other great shows. Um, I know coming up after me at 9 o'clock, uh, Jay's Radio Hour will be on. They're doing a live show. They'll be coming in, so it's kind of a busy night here at the old uh, Space 101.1 FM studio. But I want to welcome our first guest. Let's see if I can do this. It's a little bit rusty. I haven't been at the mixing board like this too much lately. Let's see. First of all, we're going to play her uh, welcome music. Let's see. Boy, that's loud, isn't it? (laughs) There you go. Bump that down. All professional-like. And now let's see if we can get uh, Catherine on the phone. Catherine, can you hear me? Oh, hang on a second. Let's see. Uh, hang on. Let's see here. Mm. 
by the penis and popcorn. We'll have us a ball. Can you hear me, Catherine? I'm not hearing you on this phone here. Hang on a second. Let's try this one more time. You can listen to Elvis Presley while we try to get Catherine on the phone here. Let's see. What am I doing here? Hang on a second here. Oh, oh, there we go. Let's have that. There we go. Now, can you hear me, Catherine? Hmm, that's strange. What are we not doing about the phone here? Let's see. Can you hear me, Catherine? <laughs> are you there, Catherine? There you are. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, there we go. That's uh, technical issues on my end here. I haven't done this oh, in studio I, I for... had you on speakerphone. Maybe that was the problem. Okay, that could have been. Anyway, well, there you are. That was exciting. We'll edit that out on the podcast. Don't worry. That's just the, okay. that's the magic of live broadcasting. All those sort of little yeah. technical. Now let's see. Did we lose? Did we lose? Is Elvis still there? Oh, let's let's play a little bit of Elvis again. <laughs> let's see. There he is. This is your theme song. <laughs> okay. No matter where you go, there you are. <laughs> Take me to the fair. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll spare the audience from that. So anyway, it's Catherine White. Catherine, I think I met you about twenty-five years ago when I was first working on the spelling bee. And you yes. went to Seattle PI, and then I yes. went to Mohai, and we kept working together on all sorts of stuff. So, yes. but, but you told me a story a while ago, and I wanted to have you on because I think it's the 61st anniversary right now, middle of September 2023, when a very big deal happened at the World's Fair back in 1962. So what, what was that big deal that happened? Who, who came to the fair in September of 1962? Elvis Aaron Presley <laughs> now, in person. Now, uh, and you're an Elvis fan. When did you first become an Elvis fan? Well, I think I must have been uh, 14, 15, 16. I'm 77 now, so it was a long while ago, probably when he shook his booty on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> okay, so it was long before the Seattle World's Fair that you were, you were an Elvis fan. Well, not that long, but okay. yes, 60, 61, 62. Okay. And um, so when you, what, how do you recall you first heard that Elvis was going to be at the World's Fair? Well, I, uh, I started an Elvis Presley fan club. Uh, there was a magazine at the time called Teen Magazine, and in the back of the magazine they had a little classified section where you could start your very own Elvis Presley fan club <laughs> if you wanted to, just send in a dollar or something silly like that, and... I did, and my girlfriend and I, just the two of us, started an Elvis Presley fan club in Seattle um, in the Queen Anne neighborhood where we lived, and we called it the Truly True to Elvis Fan Club, and we had two members to begin with, and uh, we advertised it on Teen Magazine and asked people to send in a dollar to join, and we got a whole bunch of money, <laughs> and, wow. so and we faked a fan club and sent out little newsletters and and had a great time, and and we received letters from all over the world of people thinking I could introduce them to Elvis, which I could not, of course, but we had a great fan base from all over the world. It was great fun. Why, I mean, this maybe this is nitpicking, but why would someone from all over the world want to join an Elvis club based in Seattle? <laughs> well, because there were Elvis Presley clubs all over the world, and he had such a fan base, I mean... I, we had letters from New Zealand for them, <laughs> and they, it was great fun. And actually, they didn't even have to send any money because they don't have dollar bills in New Zealand, I don't think. But anyway, was, he had a fan base 
That's pretty worldwide cool. Worldwide, even then. See, that's I like that kind of organic, uh, kind of uh, what is it, analog style of connecting with people because it's so easy nowadays to put up a website <laughs> or send email or something. But the fact you actually had to, you know, find the address in the back of a teen magazine and then go to the trouble of folding and you know, writing it on a piece of paper and folding it up and figuring out how much postage to put on it and everything, and then, you know, the the weeks and weeks it would take for all that transaction to happen that now help happens, you know, almost simultaneously. I don't think anyone under a certain age probably has no idea what we're even talking about, but I just, <laughs> no. I, I love that. I love just the time it used to take to do that kind it's of history. analog communication. Yeah, and it was not really that long. I mean, it was still that way probably, what, 30 years ago. It was still kind of that way before before the yes. internet and email and stuff. So, uh, do, do you, Now, do you, ever, do you know exactly how many members you had in your club? If you had to put, like a, put an estimate on the number of people who actually signed I would, up? I would say uh, about maybe 200. That's, <laughs> a, that's amazing. That's really amazing. I mean... I am a real pack rat, and I am 77 years old now, and somewhere among um, the rubble of my past, I have a, a, well, it would be like the equivalent of a of a grocery sack of these letters. I just could not throw them away from oh, yeah. people oh, writing. That's cool. From, like, New Zealand. Could you please get Elvis's autograph for me? <laughs> I like his record, Return December, which was really Return to Sender. And, you know, how could you throw away something like that? that and uh, that's and we cool. tried to answer all the letters, but I don't know that we really did because I don't remember having to get postage to New Zealand. That's really cool. <laughs> but, and, and and so, you know, Elvis, of course, I don't know, uh, not sure how many people remember nowadays that they did make this movie called It Happened at the World's Fair, and they shot it in Seattle for a couple weeks in September. Do you recall, like, how you actually found out he was coming to Seattle? Was there sort of a, do you remember, like, how you got the news about that? Well, uh, there was a national Elvis Presley fan club, and because we had a little satellite club in Seattle, we received information that he was coming to Seattle, and we we, my girlfriend and I, called the manager's office, and we were actually, you know, we got hooked up to Tom Parker's office, and yes, he's coming to Seattle on September 13th, whatever. Oh, wow. 1962, and, and we were able to to go down to the World's Fair and hang out and find him. So. <laughs> now, wait a second. Was, isn't school back in session by September 13th? Don't tell my mother. <laughs> <laughs> we we were so honest. My my mother and my girlfriend's mother allowed us to feign sickness, and uh, we we got an excused absence from school, and we were sick down at the Seattle Center. That's great. <laughs> so so you lived on Queen Anne Hill, so it wasn't that well, it didn't take long to get down to the fairgrounds, right? No, we just walked down. You just walked down. That's great. Yeah. And then so what? We were only like fifteen. Oh, I was. 16 and my, my friend was 15, so right. we just walked. And, and, and did you have a plan in mind when you went down to the center that day? What were, what, were you hoping that, what were you hoping would happen? We just wanted to see him, even from a distance. <laughs> and uh, we were able to do that because it was midday in the middle of the week, and no one was there, especially teenage girls like I was. And uh, the access was incredible because we just didn't know any better. <laughs> And so, and so were you watching them, really, watching them film uh, or something, or what were they doing? Pardon me? Were you watching them actually film scenes from the movie, or what did you see them doing? Yes, yes. There was a, a, a scene from uh, the World's Fair movie, and I was just shocked at the number of takes they had to do just like a 30-minute sequence, and it, they did like 15 takes of Elvis with this little uh, darling girl who was, I can't remember her name now. but Oh, Vicky, was, Vicky she, too. Vicky too. Yes, yes. Yeah. She became very famous, and it was just a little scene that they kept 
doing over and over and over, and it, there weren't hardly any people really outside that we could see what was happening. And I saw a cameraman, you know, doing his thing, and I said, I handed him a piece of paper asking him if he could get Elvis's autograph for a fan club that my friend and I had. And he said he would do what he could. He was very approachable, and, you know, I was just hoping to get an autograph, and he he did, and it was on some letterhead that we had printed his Elvis Presley fan club, <laughs> truly true to Elvis and then our address. And he just wrote across the top of the page, thanks, Elvis Presley. So he, he acknowledged that we had a fan club here and just wrote the word thanks. I didn't expect that at all. That's cool. So it was really impressive and kind and nice. So wait, where you're watching them film the scene, could you, do you know what part of the grounds that was or where that was exactly? It's right by the Coliseum. If anyone remembers, the okay. Coliseum is now called something else. Clim- <laughs> Climate Pledge Arena, okay. Yes, All right. exactly. And, yeah. and how close were you when they're, when they're seeing Elvis and this little girl, Vicky, too, do their scene? Are you, how, how close are you actually to the action? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm spatially challenged okay. here, <laughs> I would say. You know, maybe 25 feet. It was pretty close. So really close. Okay. Yeah. And, and were there others like you, like St. Was there like young girls like you? Were there other people just standing if watching there them? Were, I was so zoned out, I don't remember <laughs> a thing. There was absolutely no chaos at all. No no interruption. It was just, huh. we were like frozen in time. And so how long did you spend watching that? that I mean, what happened next, I guess? Um, I What happened, it was, it was pretty fast. I would say maybe 10 10, 15 minutes. Then Elvis was uh, going to be transported from that scene to another place on the fairgrounds, and he was in a a golf cart is all I can think of it as. And I saw him being seated into this golf cart with the driver, and I I just, here I am, 16 years, I jumped up on the, the hood of the golf cart, <laughs> golf cart because I wanted to get a picture of him, and I had a I think it was a brownie camera, one of those cameras you look down into. It wasn't like, I mean, it was, to get him in my sight, I had to look down into this camera, and it was a box camera, and I took one picture, and it turned out, and I got a picture of him wearing his leather jacket with a scarf and a, like a hat that, I don't know, so, Keep your hat like anyway. So, I got a picture of him. It was a black and white, just one picture, and it turned out. And I have it to this day. It's so, never been published. So no, um, I, I love the idea. Like like with a camera like that, instead of just pointing it and pressing the button and guessing, you actually look down into the little little top little it, viewfinder thing. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was like a dinosaur camera. <laughs> and, and so, were you hanging on with one hand to like the? like the side of the window on the golf cart? Like, well, I, keep in mind, I was 16, so okay. I wasn't that big. But I, I did jump up, and I had some traction, and there was a security <laughs> officer that pulled me off after <laughs> I got my picture. He says, you can't be up there. <laughs> but they were going, you know, like slow motion. It was not fast. I, I didn't have any fear of falling or anything or that I was disrupting. It was just like, wow. it was very benign. And, and did they um did they, they did they slam on the brakes and stop the golf cart? Or did they just or did they keep rolling the whole time? Um, actually, I I think they did stop. Okay. Yeah. And did did Elvis react in any way to all the what was going on? No. Yeah, no. He, I guess stuff like that probably happened to 
all the time. <laughs> it's just another... another day in Elvis's life, <laughs> maybe, huh? <laughs> now, okay, so now, of course, you know, same, we're, same way we were talking about communication being slower and more analog, you know, in those days in terms of writing letters and using envelopes and stamps and everything. The picture's not instant, of course. It's not a Polaroid camera. So how did you get the photograph developed? How long did it take? Tell me about how you got the the actual film developed. Well, I had to take the film to a a pharmacy at the foot of Queen Anne's (laughs) Gaylor Street steps. There's a, from Queen Anne High School to go down to actually Queen Anne Avenue, there's a stairway called Gaylor Street steps. And at the foot of the stairs was a pharmacy called Julian's Pharmacy. That's where they... Uh, processed film. That's where you had to get film developed if you okay. wanted it. And I mean, you took it in by hand, and I got it like a week later. And I, you know, just was shocked that I had this picture, <laughs> and it was pretty cool. It was the only one, and <laughs> and uh, I I just treasured it, and I didn't really do anything with it. So kind of dumb but no but but when you know when you handed in the film um did you would you say like this is really like you got to really i know I mean, did you give them any no. any indication of that it might be a really interesting photo or you just you just handed it no, in anonymous? I okay <laughs> <laughs> i know those gaylor street stairs i used to live my wife and i used to live at the top of the gaylor street stairs in yeah. the galleon apartment building I used to go down those stairs all yeah. i know exactly what you're talking about right at the top of the counterbalance there yeah and there's That's a little great. water fountain at the base of it yeah oh is the is water fountain still there I doubt it. <laughs> I'll wow. go check. But, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, and I still don't. <laughs> so, okay, so you have the print, the photograph, and you're, who do you show it to when you get it back from the pharmacy? You know, I, I just, I don't mean to put myself down, but I was just kind of oblivious. We were too busy, you know, <laughs> doing our newsletter and uh, watching American Bandstand and yeah. going down to Woolworths downtown Seattle or to the Bon Marche to buy the latest 45. Yeah. Or album, and so we. My I didn't have a. They were called hi-fi stereos. My girlfriend had a stereo. I did not. So we bought records and played them, and watched American Bandstand, and had Coke and potato chips, and returned correspondence to people who wrote to us. <laughs> and we had um, little promotional stickers that we sent to people that they could put on their envelopes to promote. We had Elvis number one king of all time and you know just dumb little did, did uh, you have those stickers made or did they send those to you from the Elvis headquarters somewhere no, we had them made and wow. I, and my dad was just real <laughs> he bankrolled us with <laughs> <laughs> getting these things printed at some little print shop on uh, Queen Anne somewhere that's really and sweet it was, it's, it's just, it was pretty it, cool it, it's whole thing sounds really sweet and cool it just sounds like a really kind of just a distinct moment in time that could never be recreated or never be I mean it's just it's such a this distinctive circumstances and the, the stuff you poured into putting that little club together and then climbing up on the golf cart I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> it's like a you know it's like a it's a it's a great story um now was that the when did your Elvis fandom sort of peak is there sort of a did it, did it, oh, did it I would did, say um maybe it probably went for like two years okay maybe not much more when we had we had to get our grades going you know (laughs) but we did have uh, there was a my girlfriend's mother worked at an office and she had a mimeograph machine whatever that is (laughs) they didn't have like photocopies so we ran our little newsletter off on a 
I can't think of what it's called, a mimeograph machine. Yeah, a mimeograph, where you, where you like a hand crank thing with a purple yeah, lock and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those yeah. Are, okay. so I remember those. My mother <laughs> typed our little newsletter out, and we just got some some help from Elvis Presley headquarters in Memphis or wherever he That's pretty Tom cool. Parker was. But That's cool. So we, we had backup help See, to I make mean, us look good. But didn't that didn't that sort of isn't that sort of like like oh, I don't know it's almost like um, like your own your own internship where it's like playing the kind of thing you'll do eventually for work like you you know you have some headquarters you're reporting to you have people you're like correspondents or your customers or your members or whatever it's like it's that seems like the kind of thing that like nothing but positive in terms of like practice for future adult real life or maybe I'm yeah. not, am I reading too much a, into it. it it was a uh, Queen Anne High School was a big high school, and I immediately signed up for journalism classes, and, <laughs> and uh, was fortunate enough to become editor in chief, a co-editor in chief with great. our with another guy. So we had a, a great introduction into journalism. And see, that's great. What a great fun. story. What a cool story. And you know the I know the movie. I mean, do, what do you think of that movie? Have you watched it a lot of times? <laughs> no. Probably just one. Yeah. I know that I read the New York Times review of it recently. It said the the line, the catchphrase was something like, It happened at the World's Fair, probably should never have happened at all or something. And <laughs> talked about the forgettable songs and the wooden oh, the wooden funny. acting and the lackluster this and that. But I think the the fairgrounds look so great. There's so many beautiful shots of the old uh, the old layout of the fairgrounds, which was still the layout until really like the ni- late nineteen seventies, really, but it it's in it's in color, of course, and the city, the, the fairgrounds just looks gorgeous. And it's the fact that Elvis yeah. shot a movie during that fair makes it makes it kind of special, I think. So it's it's a cool little time capsule. So yeah, a little bubbleator and yeah. yeah, and that ride where he's uh, riding on the monorail and like mm-hmm. little, little Vicky too. And I interviewed Vicky Cayetano. She ran for governor. Oh. Her you know her her husband was governor yeah. of Hawaii, and she ran herself for governor. I think two years ago, and I interviewed her. She didn't she didn't make yeah. it through the primary, but. She, you know, it's it was a big, obviously huge part of her life, kind of the peak of her huge, acting yes. career and everything. So you get around, Felix. <laughs> I just like talking to people about cool old stories. And Catherine, listen, I really appreciate you joining us here live on Cascade of History to share that story. Um, I'd, I'd love to have you again on on again sometime and talk about other Seattle stuff, Seattle PI stuff, the Seattle PI Globe. There's so much oh, great yes. history that that I know you have been witness to over the decades. So been up there. All right. Well, let's keep well, in touch. Thank you and, very um, much for keeping this uh, memory alive. And, and we're gonna play. A, we're gonna, wait, we're gonna play your whatever theme music to play as you head out here. Some different Elvis theme music. Let's see if I can get it to work this time. Okay. Thank you. This is the big closing theme here from Happy Ending from the end of the movie. Ah, <laughs> anyway, you know, if you know, if you know the words, sing along. <laughs> Bye, Catherine. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye. I'm not smart enough to figure why. Some folks enjoy a real good cry. Ending, happy ending. Give me a story with a happy ending. When boys curl up in, they never part again, but live forever happily, like you and. Stand a chance that you'd give me a second glance. Only thing I fake and play a part and give a guy.
story with a little false ending there on happy ending. False, happy false ending there at the end of the Elvis Presley song. That, of course, is from the It Happened at the World's Fair soundtrack, that incredible Elvis Presley movie, which was filmed in 1962 at the Seattle World's Fair. Our previous guest, Catherine White, she was there. She saw the movie being filmed and climbed on the front of the golf cart and got a picture of Elvis with her brownie camera. So I'll see if I can convince Catherine to let me use that photo, and we'll share that on the Cascade of History Facebook page sometime soon. I've seen the picture before. It's a great, it's a great picture. I think he's wearing his little, uh, little cap and his little uh, leather jacket and stuff, and just a real moment in history there along the, uh, along the old Seattle Center Coliseum Climate Pledge Arena. Okay, uh, it is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. It's our one-year anniversary show. So we're not really pulling out all the stops or anything crazy like that, but we do have some really good guests. Um, we're going to be talking in about, uh, oh, 20 minutes or so with uh, Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild about their upcoming conference next Saturday in Seattle. It's free. You can register in advance. But before we do that, we're going to talk to Marcus Farner. Let's see if I can get him on the phone. Marcus, can you hear me? Marcus, can you hear me? Good to be back. Oh, there you are. Wonderful. I'm, I'm just uh, the cobwebs on the <laughs> This is the first in-studio show I've done in a couple months. Done some live ones out in the field with a whole different setup. I'm just sort of, you know, kind of getting back on the old horse, as they say. So thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, Yeah. great to be back. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no, it was fun. I remember we spoke a couple months ago, and uh, it's, I just, I love British Columbia. As I was saying at the top of the show, you know, we try to treat the Northwest, you know, North Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia as this sort of, you know, even though the politics are different and the different countries and everything, it's it's a contiguous region of history. So that's why. Oh, I, absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. So how's your how's your summer how's your summer been there up in Coquitlam? Uh, it's been busy. It's been busy. It's been very warm, and it's been kind of crazy because we completely renovated the museum, so it's now beautiful. It's got a new roof on there. It's got like new historic wallpaper. Uh, so that was a bit crazy, but you know how all renovations are. But um, it's looking really mighty and fine now. The building. <laughs> now this is the this is a historic home. Is it the Macklin House? Mac- Macken House. Macken exactly. House. That's yeah. what's no L. Okay. Mackin yeah, we're well, located in Macken House. It was built in 1909. It used to be the the general sales manager's home uh, for for the Fraser Mill. And you know, like so, after I think it's been renovated about 25 years ago or something like this. And now it's time to to do some updates. And uh, it's it's looking really nice now. That's great. And so the Fraser Mill, for people who might not know the story of that, give us a quick little thumbnail of what the Fraser Mill was. Yeah, just uh, just a quick one. So like the, the Fraser Mill used to be uh, one of, I think it's the second biggest mill in, 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 in the empire uh, back in the day. And um, a lumber mill, uh, the Fraser uh, River is sort of just below us, so they were, could easily float uh, big logs and, and down there, and then they would cut them up, and they would actually ship the lumber uh, pretty much all all around the empire, and and that was a huge sort of industrial well industrial area, and then and that sort of kind of eventually gave birth to what is now Coquitlam. Initially, it was just Fraser Mills, uh, 
um, and then eventually got incorporated and became uh, the city of Coquitlam. Huh. Okay. And is is the mill? I mean, this is maybe this is a dumb question. Is the mill still in operation in any degree at all? No, there's nothing. There's nothing left. I mean, there's maybe. I, 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 to my knowledge, there's really there might be some some of the you know the bunkhouses from the workers. There might be some, but no, there's nothing left of the Okay. Mill. And when did the mill shut down? Um, I think the last. Now, don't pin me down on that one. I think it's 2012 or something. Okay, like so that not was, uh, not that long ago. So, re- so relatively no, recently. Like, no, okay. it's not that long ago. No. Huh. Okay. And so, with Coquitlam, what replaced the mill in terms of the economy and the like, the economic growth engine there in that area? Um, I think like well, well, one of the big players is, of course, uh, there is a casino. Ah. Um, but then we sort of have like all sorts of uh, industry, but I think sort of one of the heavy hitters definitely probably would be considered a casino. Got it. Okay. Interesting. And so the um, the Mackin House is uh, it's it's one of the executive homes from the from the old Fraser Mill. Okay. Exactly. But, yeah, okay. the sales manager used to. And Henry Mackin was like she. I think he actually just spent two years living there with his family. But he sort of left uh, quite a legacy. He was like, uh, he's really into baseball. <laughs> and, and then he sort of set up uh, a little baseball uh, uh, pitch just behind the, behind the house. And that's now become Mackin Park or something. And uh, to uh, this very day, they play baseball there. And great. actually cricket. They got a, got a team from, from Jamaica there or like a lot of people from the Caribbean. And they're playing cricket down there as well, which is pretty exciting. No, that's cool. Now, I like what you guys do. I know you don't just do programming at that house. You do programming in different parts of the city and different organizations house the exhibits that you guys put together. And that's the case with this current exhibit about Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Exactly. I mean, we try to, we have sort of, you know, like, obviously, uh, we want to reach out into the community and, you know, like, sort of amplify their voices, uh, but also, like, then show different exhibitions around uh, around Coquitlam. So, like, a really a great partner is uh, the Coquitlam Library. And uh, every year we have a couple of displays. In, in, in There's two libraries, the Central Library and another smaller one. And so in both of them, we tend to have a display. So and this one is the Central Library, which is the big one. And uh, we have the Chinese uh, Exclusion Act from 1923, in there as, a, as an exhibition. They usually last go for about a month, and then we take them down, and then a couple of months later, we might do another exhibition. So this is the centennial, and what what I mean? What was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1923? Is this is it's Canada wide? It's not just British Columbia, right? Oh yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely Canada wide. So what it is, sort of, I think like the, and I'm kind of compressing this here. So um, so you could say probably like the first. Well, was probably hard to tell, but the first sort of Chinese arrived 1788. Uh, a lot of them sort of come for, for um, you know, looking for gold, uh, making some money here. And then it really kicks off uh, when, the, when the railway is being built. Um, and uh, to sort of kind of that sort of meets after, especially after the railway is then finished, it kind of, there's a lot of fears that, you know, Chinese workers might replace uh, the white workers. There's a sort of an anti-Asian uh, exclusion league forms. Um, and then the legislation sort of kicks in sort of in, in 1885. Uh, they have sort of a Chinese Immigration Act. Um, they start putting a hat tax on, which means if you want to come from China to, to Canada, you'll have to pay. You can't just come in here. 
So initially it's fifty dollars, hmm. um, and then it gets bigger and bigger. And then I think the sort of the forces uh, that be is they decide oh, this is not enough. You know, like just levying a head tax just doesn't prevent people because you know they, they these guys they work hard, right? I mean, they they're young men. They want to come here to to you know work for 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 a couple of years here and then send money back money back or just make it rich here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're hardworking, so you can't keep them out that way. And, and, and so the reg- legislation is really, really quite racist. So they set up in, nine, in July the 1st, uh, 1923, the, the Immigration Act is passed. And, and that's quite a draconian piece of legislation. It literally keeps out every, almost everyone. There's a few actors come in during that time, a handful, of course, uh, some businessmen maybe, but essentially keeps out... So, like, I've, or when we researched it, we sort of found, I mean, some say there's about only 15 people between 1923 and um, 1947 that come in. Other sources are a little bit higher, 50. But no matter what, it's certainly drastically limited uh, the immigration of, of Chinese people to, to, to Canada in general. Wow. So you're saying there was just double digits total immigration from China into Canada between 1923 and 1947 because of this legislation. Yeah, yeah. They really, wow, they really that's harsh. This down. That, that, it's, it's very, it's, it's incredibly harsh, right? And, and so what it also means is, um, like, you know, like, I mean, so you have, of course, right, before then you have a lot of people from China in here. Now, they, of course, have families uh, here, they have families back in China, right? They, if they are born in Canada, they're allowed to leave. But if they don't come back within two years' time, uh, then they lose all rights to come back to Canada, right? Now, we're talking, this is not a time of air travel, right? So, you know, two years' time might be easy for us nowadays, you know, to meet those deadlines. But I think back in the day, it could be, you know, could be easily missed or something with, you know, not missing getting a boat or, or, or some other calamities that happen in life, right? Yeah. And also what happened, all these, um, uh, everyone had to register, even if you were Canada-born. So there's a lot of their sort of these head tax certificates where people have to show that they paid uh, the head tax um, mm. uh, beforehand. And then later on, people have to register, even if they're Canada-born, uh, that, that they are, you know, basically that they are allowed to, to stay here. And uh, if they fail to do so, I think they would levy like fines up to $500, which is a huge amount of money. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and they could be fined, uh, could be imprisoned, uh, or I guess thrown out of the country. So, I mean, what impact did that have then in the 1920s if you're if you immigrated to Canada from China and you have family back in China still and there's this Chinese community that's there, you know, in some measure before 1923, what happens to that community in those 24 years where there's no immigration, essentially no immigration allowed? Well, I think what, 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 what's tragic and what you see is, I mean, there's, of course, you know, there's still thousands of, of Chinese people here, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> workers. So now what you and which was really, I think that's, that's why this act is uh, so cruel. You see them being shut off from their families. There is no way um, for them to, you know, like, you know, bring wife and kids back to, to Canada. Um, you know, like, 
they would some of some of the men would just kind of come here and literally probably knowing that they would never ever see their wife again or their child, right? Uh, they they could send money back, uh, but that was also progressively made harder and harder during World War Two. Yeah. Um, they they limited the amount of money they could send back, and and so what, what happened is there's a lot of um, these single men. And, and that they would have, you know, they live in, you know, like sort of boarding houses together. And, and I've, I've heard stories. And we actually, uh, as a team from the museum, um, we went to the Chinese uh, Canadian Museum. It's a, it's a beautiful museum down in Vancouver. And uh, Catherine Clement, she's done, uh, set up, a, as, I think, an external um, curator and exhibition. It's called The Paper Trail. And there's hundreds of pet sex certificates. Anyway, and, mm. and the stories say that a lot of these men, you know, they would sort of live alone and they really miss children. So there's stories when, you know, if a, a Chinese merchant came and had a family, you know, <laughs> men would come and maybe, you know, take the kid out for a day, buy them candy or something. Because, you know, you can imagine it's, it's quite lonely, right? I mean, you are not... Uh, you're not welcomed by the sort of general white population. Yeah. Uh, and and I think you just live a very, a very sort of lonely life. And I've heard a lot of men were also like terrified of the idea of that they would just die here and then, you know, not be buried um, or, or forgotten in some way or other. So a lot of they, they, they sometimes tied money into or uh, like stitched money into their clothing that if something happened, People knew, okay, you know, like I can get a couple of bucks out of yeah. uh, out of somewhere so that we could at least bury him. Um, it's brutal. I think it's brutal. I mean, I I could not imagine, you know, if I had to leave my family, not knowing that I would be able, you know, maybe never to see them again. And you know, times, you know, you like maybe write a letter, but you know, like you, you can see how difficult communication would have been, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, this, so I mean, th- I imagine this 24-year period of this the this legislation, I mean, it's like a wound, right? Is, is the wound healed now? Is there still, I mean, exhibits like what you guys have at the Coquitlam Library now, they help kind of tell the story and kind of daylight these darker periods of Canadian history. In American, we have similar stories in, in the United States, of course we do. Yeah. But does this sort of, is this still a wound in the Chinese community, or is this is this truly kind of something in the distant past that that isn't really an impacting anyone here in in British Columbia yeah. in 2023? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, I mean, who am I to speak for for the for the Chinese community? But yeah. what we we, re, we reached out and and for to get some you know people that had some kind of connection uh, to it, and and we actually had a quite a sort of enthusiastic. Initially, people saying, oh, great, we contact you. And then, you know how it is, we, we ended up having actually just one uh, person who was very active, Albert Zhao, and we tell his story in there. And, and to his very day, he said that he, you know, in a way, his family suffered, right? So mm. um, they, 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 I think they made various attempts. You know, his great-great-grandfather came as panning for gold. Mm. Um, then just Prior to World War One, uh, sorry, World War Two, uh, they had to leave Canada again, and and there's sort of a struggle coming back. He lost during the war uh, due due to malnutrition, lost his uh, his little sister, and I think it is, it's. I mean, you know, like it's it's a wound. I think in the sense that they realize that 
so much was taken from them and their lives could have been so much different. And I think along the way, I mean, from, from what I hear from Albert's story, like sort of trials and tribulations, even then, you know, uh, during the, the war years, it's, it's something that they're very keenly aware um, how brutal that was and, you know, how hostile, they, literally then, you know, I mean, I don't say the entire country, of course, but you know how hostile um, or how many hostilities they met, you know, like, so 1907, right, there is, uh, there, I think there's some riots uh, down your end in Bellingham and it spreads over and then they'll, they, they, they destroy China town here in, in Vancouver. Um, and I think these things sit deeply, um, these are scars, right? Because this is, this is, uh, history that people can still remember, right? This is not yeah. ancient history. Um, so, and then I think like um, years ago, I think uh, Prime Minister Harper, in, I think 2006, issued an apology and and they gave some money to it. But but like what Albert said, he he felt it was it was just not enough, you know. And, yeah. And giving you know giving a I don't know how much it was, uh, but you know like he has a large family. So, like, eventually, you know, like, probably ended up that not everyone or people eventually were split up, didn't get that much. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you can't, you know, you just pay off, give someone money for having lost uh, fat members of their family yeah. and, and having lost everything. Um, I think that's brutal. So, yeah, I think it certainly is still there. And I think it's important also... Um, like many things, you know, like we're talking, you know, from slavery to other other horrible uh, things that you talk about these things. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's important that history comes out and, and gets talked about. Right. And I mean, that's exactly what you do in a program like yours. Right. We, yeah. we mustn't forget forget this. And I think that's the way that's the way of coming together and healing. I mean, I don't think there is a in the sense that they say, oh, wow, you know, like. Canada did so wrong, you guys must, whatever, you know, <laughs> pay for something or, or suffer. But it, it's this sense of let's talk about it, not let's not bury this history. Yeah, um, absolutely. And when we had it in the library, I, I had some really beautiful reactions. I noticed, um, you know, some people who, who read read the panels. We, we translated all panels that we've uh, researched and written into into both simplified Chinese and, of course, in English, right? And, and so a lot of people stopped there. And I think one elderly man, that really impressed me. He, I think clearly his English was either not very good or maybe zero. And he just picked up one of the books and said, I'm Chinese. And, uh, but it wasn't like, oh, yeah, you know, of course I noticed that he was Chinese. But it was like, hey, you see me, you talk about me. Um, that's what that, what that gesture meant. And, you know, I thought like, yeah, you know, it's, it's important. Yeah, and I love that you guys have the exhibit in the library, too, because obviously if you go to a museum, you expect to see history exhibits. But if you're just going to the library, which you might go to more often than you do a museum, then like you're kind of taking the history to where the people are, which is really cool. Yeah. So, well, I need, I need to get rolling on to my next guest. But Marcus Farner from the um, Coquitlam Heritage, I want to thank you for joining us on Cascade of History. Give us what's the website address and how much longer is the exhibit going to be on display at Coquitlam Library? on till the end of the month. And okay. It's coquitlamheritage.ca. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Marcus Farner. Okay. We'll talk to you again Thanks sometime. Okay, keep in touch. Have a good night. Absolutely. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Marcus Farner with the Coquitlam Heritage Organization up there in British Columbia, joining us on Cascade of History. All right, in just a moment, we're going to talk to Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. 
but I want to uh, launch our next little uh, vintage audio program here. I don't know much about this piece of vintage audio. I'm guessing it's from the late 1940s, perhaps early 1950s. It might be KOMO Radio. It is about, um, it's it's from a history series. I have a piece of another one, but I think I have all of this one, and it's about, eh, the entire piece is about 10 minutes long. We're going to hear about four minutes of it tonight. This is a piece focused on Chief Seattle, and it's, you know, it's dated. There's elements in it that will probably sound, I don't know if they're offensive, but they're definitely from a different era. So this is, uh, this is some vintage audio here tonight on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. story of a dream, a dream of peace and friendship between two races, the dream of Siat, chief of the Duwamish Confederacy, friend of white men, American. The dream began on May morning in 1792 on the shores of Puget Sound. Where the great forests meet the great waters, Chief Shweab and a band of Duwamish Indians sat around a fire drying salmon from the spring catch. The boy, Siat, seven years old, sturdy and tall for his age, stood at the sound's edge watching the sunlight dance with the blue water. Suddenly, his copper body tensed and he cried, Hey, hey, look! Do not fear, my son. I am not afraid, but my father... What is it that flies like a giant bird on the water towards us? Devil bird sent by the evil one. Devil bird makes Suquamish dead. Run! Run to forest! Run! Quiet! Would you run like frightened children from you know not what? Who will go with Chief Scriab to the bird canoe? I, war chief Kitsap, will make ready the strong canoe. I, Siap. We'll go with my father. Will we make the magic circle against the evil ones about the bird canoe? It is well. Once. Twice. It is done. Great spirit, what creature beckons and calls to us from the bird canoe? Mighty bird bring gods to Suquamish tribe. Gods with white face or men from strange land. Gods or men, they come from great spirit. Their faces shine like the sun itself and their voices like wind in the cedars at night. Siat sat as if he were bound in a spell while his father and Kitsap brought the stout cedar canoe close to the sailing ship. He could not understand the words of Captain George Vancouver, nor read the lettering that told the ship's name was Discovery. But his boy's heart warmed to the kindly looks and the gentle smile of Captain Vancouver as the sailors lowered a rope with a bundle of gifts, bells and shining buttons and blue cloth. That night, as the gifts passed from one hand to another around the fire, Seattle questioned his father. Are they warriors, Father? The men with white faces? Mm, Not warriors. Gods, maybe. They are beautiful and kind, and they come in peace. 
When I am tall and strong, I shall seek them in the wide world. I would be their friend. Peace and kindness, uh, Squawk, chief of Suquamish, be mighty warrior. Even as my father, Chief Squeab. You must learn many things, strength, courage, and wisdom. Tomorrow, you will begin preparing. So Siat learned to be a chief. With the other boys of the tribe, he raced his canoe, fought wildcats, swam in icy waters to toughen his body. He listened for hours to the tales of wise men and fasted often and prayed to the great spirit. But the dream stayed with him that one day the white men would come again, that he, Siat, would be their friend. All right, so that's installment one of our latest vintage audio series. We don't know much about it. I need to figure out, I'm going to see if I can... I'll get some help kind of figuring out where that was produ- originally produced. I think a couple things. Um, I think the pronunciation they're doing of Siat, I, I'm not going to even attempt it myself, is pretty good. Um, but I think the sort of the, the English is sort of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's obviously of its time. I'm not going to make any apologies for it, but it is a piece of vintage audio. But it's interesting. Um, so we'll get maybe two or three, more, probably one or two more installments from that over the next several weeks here on Cascade of History. And joining us now, I want to uh, bring Megan Churchwell on the, on the line here. Let's see if we can get her on the line. Megan, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, man. It only took me to the, to the third caller tonight to actually get it so it was all smooth and seamless. So <laughs> thanks for uh, making time to join us here on Cascade of History. I know you've got the big conference coming up next week. Um, it's Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. Is this an annual conference or is it every other, every other year? I can't remember. It is every other year. Okay, good. All right. And I, I, I've already mentioned once I get to do the keynote speech on Saturday, and I've got, a, got some work to do between now and Saturday to get that put together. But um, what's the theme of the conference this year, and why should people attend? Other than to hear me, why should people attend the conference? Uh, so this year's theme is Revisit and Reimagine Pacific Northwest Histories. And we've put together a great slate of panels uh, for anyone who's interested in local history. Uh, we really try to make it something that's not just for students and professors and professional historians, but really anyone who has a passion for this. Excellent. And it's free admission. It's, Seattle, it's at Seattle Public Library, but you do have to do some advanced registration or something, I think, right? Yeah, so it is free to attend, uh, but we do ask you to pre-register, and you can find the registration link on our website or on our Facebook page. Okay. And it's it's revisiting and reimagining. I, I that's I mean that's the kind of the theme I'm doing with my talk. I'll give you a little little preview of what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to look at sort of the um, that kind of I do a lot of stuff around geography. That's stuff that's not on the map where people have actually like there's sort of uh, organic names for neighborhoods or streets or um, like geographic insult names for some communities. Sort of these um, I, I'm not explaining it very well. I'll be much more articulate on Saturday morning. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, <clears throat> I love this notion of just, I think the Internet has not helped do this. I think social media has helped do this. It's broken down the barriers between professional historians, between like media historians or public historians like me, between academics, between amateurs. There's sort of this like great big mixing, you know, sort of a mixing bowl, uh, melting pot of history that social media. And, and Facebook, at its, when it's working really well, does this sort of really well, breaks down these barriers and lets different people participate with different amounts of um, you know, expertise and, you know, share photos that they have from their personal collection and then institutions can put their photographs up and you get this sort of interesting dialogues underway. And that's kind of what 
I'm going to sort of revisit some of the stories I've produced for radio over the last, I guess, eight or nine years. I've been doing that for Cairo Radio, all with a focus on kind of that that idea of sort of, you know, because what I found with the work I do, you know, with people like Paul Dorpat, people like C.T. Conover back in the 1950s and 60s, maybe it was before that, a lot of these stories have been told in newspaper columns and by radio people again and again and again. And I'm trying to find stuff that hasn't been told exactly or that's a little less like it's not written down, I guess, or it's more sort of oral tradition. Or I, I focus a lot on advertising campaigns like some of these, like these, like, you know, the Rainier beer ads and the Olympia beer ads from the 1970s get kind of fetishized. They're sort of, you know, the, the, the motorcycle shifting gears and, you know, Rainier, that sound of the Rainier um, beer uh, slogan as the motorcycles disappearing past the mountain. But there's all kinds of other advertising campaigns that sort of, there's some level of the pop culture and the soft power that this region has. And that's that's kind of where I'm going with my keynote. But that, that's enough about me. But what are some of the other panels and stuff that, that are, that'll be presented on the at the conference on Saturday? So that sounds uh, fascinating. After your keynote, we'll move on to a, a jam-packed slate of presentations we've got by local historians. We have some really impressive presenters this year. Uh, topics range from civil rights activism to Norwegian ski jumping to the Puget <laughs> Town Treaty Wars uh, to neon signs. We have a little bit of everything. Oh, someone's doing neon signs? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, that's great. Okay, so yeah, okay. you'll have to uh, check out the uh, all the panels. Uh, information can be found on our website, uh, so you can check out what's happening when. Okay. I was I was worried because you know when I, when I was writing been putting my script together over the last couple of weeks I was thinking like maybe this is too wacky what I'm talking about but hearing you talk about ski jumping and treaty wars and neon signs I think I'm going to fit right in um, I'm I'm used to doing stories on the radio that are five or six minutes long so I hope I can be entertaining for more than just five or six minutes I hope I can stretch it for the whole forty five minutes or whatever it is I'm supposed to do so. Um, it seems like it'll be a receptive audience. I think people will be there. You know, they'll be in the mood to hear stories about local history and stuff. So I, I'm not too worried. But um, do you know um, how many people are expected to attend? Any idea? Uh, you know, I think usually we have uh, about 100 to 150. I'm not sure how many have registered this year yet. Okay. And how long have you been involved with the Historians Guild? Oh, gosh, probably about five or six years now. Okay. Um and so let's see, for people who want to get more information, this, let's get this one more time, get the website out there. Is there a deadline for registration or something like that? Or? Uh, so our website is pnwhistorians.org, and you can also find us on Facebook if that's easier. Okay. Uh, and um, we just ask that you register before the conference, really. Um, we do have a couple of optional add-ons uh, that... Uh, you, you'll want to register for now if you're interested in it. Um, first, we'll be providing box lunches during our midday break. Okay. Uh, so you can place your order on our website, and the deadline for that is Tuesday. Okay. Uh, and then we also have a pre-conference reception at the Mountaineers Club on Friday night before the conference. And that's here. Uh, and that's over at Sandpoint, right? That's just a few blocks yeah. from where I'm broadcasting the show from right now. Yeah, it's a great spot. That is uh, a great should spot. should be a lot of fun. That should be a great event altogether. All right. Well, listen, Megan Churchwell, I look forward to meeting you in person next week. So we've talked a few times on the phone. You've been on the show. I think we talked about the when the conference brochure came out about six months ago. I think we had you on to talk about the, as a preview for the conference. Yeah. Anyway, and we'll have, we'll have to have you on again sometime. But um, I look forward to meeting you in person next week. And thanks for joining us here on Cascade of History. And I'll, I'll see you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks, thanks Megan. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. 
All right, so Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. Um, and don't worry, my, my keynote will be much more coherent than it sounded a few minutes ago when I sort of was hemming and hawing and, uh, and uh, not sure where I was <laughs> going with parts of it. But it's, it'll, be, it'll be very cohesive and coherent. It'll have a beginning, middle, and end. It'll be, it, I promise. So that's, I think, at 9 o'clock on Saturday, early in the morning on a Saturday down there at the Seattle Public Library. Terrific venue. Great place to spend the day with some really cool panels. And um, do look at that. I, I didn't realize there was someone's doing neon signs. That's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great kind of history conference. That is, that is the nice intermingling of the, um, all different kinds of historians at, you know, at all levels, amateurs, academics, in-betweens, kind of people like me. Um, should be a terrific event. And, well, let's see. I want to thank our guests who joined us on the show tonight. Uh, we had Catherine White with her terrific story about Elvis Presley filming that movie at the World's Fair back in 1962. Hard to believe that's already 61 years ago. Um, and Marcus Farner from uh, Coquitlam Heritage with that, uh, talking about the exhibit at the Coquitlam Library that's on display through September 29th about the Chinese Exclusion Act in Canada back in 1923. And Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild uh, talking about the conference coming up. Uh, it's this coming Saturday, September 23rd with the preview event, the reception, the kickoff, Friday the 22nd, just down the street here from the radio station here out at Sandpoint, Magnuson Park. Um, I'm not sure if I'm doing a show next Sunday night. Depends how my keynote goes. If the keynote is really energizing and good, I'll, I'll come on the radio Sunday night and we'll talk about it and have some other great guests and stuff on. If not, we'll have one of our Encore episodes. If you haven't checked out the Encore episodes, we have a ton of them at our um, uh, SoundCloud page which you can get to through our Facebook page, Cascade of History. If you haven't liked that or followed that yet, please do so. Um, we have all sorts of great, we post stuff all throughout the week. We post links to other events and stories and things going on all around the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. And we sometimes will preview guests and things there. But um, we do have a link there to our SoundCloud page, which has all the episodes or most of the episodes we ever produced. There was actually one that we didn't, a uh, couple we didn't tape, including the first one we did out at uh, Memorial Stadium. Um, that was a bummer. That was a really good show. That was back about four or five months ago. But we did record the one that we did from Memorial Stadium just last month on VE, uh, VJ Day. That was a fun show. So, all right. Well, um, Jay's record show is coming up next, right? You guys coming in the studio or come and get your thing plugged in here? Do you want me to fire my own? <laughs> we have this. Uh, this is a fun station because most of the time you're here by yourself and then you're, you know, nobody, nobody comes in the building. Do you have the audio to fire if you need? Yes, yeah. I do. Oh, cool. Okay. This is going to be fun. This is like a little peeling back the curtain here. Not time to, not time to play it yet, but in about 45 seconds, um, Jay's going to play the closing part of my show here because I gave him an MP3 file. This is really behind the scenes. This is really, we're going really inside baseball here. Um, but, uh. So you got a live show coming up with all sorts of great music here on Space 101.1 FM. And uh, well, the podcast for this show will be posted here in the next hour or so. I'm Felix Bunnell with Cascade of History. We're the only show focused on Northwest history, doing live radio every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time here from Space 101.1. If you haven't been to our website yet, space101fm.org, that's where you can find the streaming signal. You can find information about all the other terrific shows. You can also contribute, too. We depend on contributors to give us financial support to keep the station on the air. I'll see you next week, everybody. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing 
and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.